welcome to Cult Movie Cult, where we watch and discuss the horrific, the obscure, and the flat-out strange from the other side of cinema. I'm Mark Dickerson. And I'm Jeremy Fink, and this is the second installment in our series, 80s Indies. Today we'll be talking about 1982's Eating Raoul. Meet Paul and Mary Bland. Hey, you two live in the building. You must swing, right? Wrong. Good night. We're so lucky to have found each other. A typical American couple. I know. Good night, dear. Sweet dreams. With a typical American dream and typical American problems. You are through at Clay Liquor. Mr. Leach, I'm sure the bank has nothing to worry about. It's going to get everything that's coming to it. The bank wants to see what it's getting into. For the Blands, life was just a rat race. A cartoon mouse. Oh, great. Trigger likes you already. We like B&D, but we don't like S&M. We met at the A&P. But they found a way to beat it. Until... Mr. Raul Mendoza, como esta usted? They met a hot-blooded, emotional, crazy Chicano. I'm a hot-blooded, emotional, crazy Chicano. Eating Raul. Eating Raul is a 1982 American dark comedy film directed by Paul Bartel and co-written by Bartel and Richard Blackburn. It also stars Bartel alongside longtime collaborator Mary Warnov and Robert Beltran. It is the story of a prudish married couple who, in an effort to raise money to buy their dream restaurant, resort to killing affluent swingers and robbing them. Yeah, it's a great premise, uh, like we were saying before we started recording today, Jeremy. And I almost feel like we couldn't do an 80s indie series without talking about this movie because uh, i had never seen it until now uh, i was very aware of it and it always seemed like a movie that was definitely up my alley with the type of black humor it, it uh that it, it seemed to have and um that name always intrigued me eating raul just that uh, you know what does it mean i mean i was pretty sure what it meant but I, <laughs> yeah you know it, um but so yeah this movie but it always has stuck out to me as a very independent film um, you know, something that kind of came out of nowhere and was super low budget, uh, which we'll talk about. And um, it, like you said, it was directed by, co-written by, and also starring Paul Bartel. Mm-hmm. And we've actually talked about Paul Bartel before in the show because when we did our Rock and Reel series, we talked about Rock and Roll High School. And he's in that movie along with uh, Mary Waranoff, who... They, they acted together a lot. They were sort of acting partners, writing partners, um, just collaborators, I guess you'd call them. Uh, and Mary Warnoff, of course, was a, a very big, and still is actually, a very big cult movie star. She mm-hmm. has acted in a lot of these types of films, these sort of offbeat characters and these offbeat films that she appears in. And um, she was in that film as well, Rock and Roll High School. And um, I thought she was great in that and, and very good in this as well. She actually, I believe, also kind of one of the earlier things she did. Obviously, this work was kind of, this was early 80s and a lot of work, we, the other work we've discussed from her was 70s. But she was also involved in uh, Andy Warhol's films. She was yeah, featured she in was, some of those. Um, she was uh, a Warhol girl, I guess. Yeah. And she's <laughs> one a, of the factory girls. One of the factory. And she's a painter as well. So right. just, you know, just kind so of fun. Very artistic and yeah. creative. Yeah. And, and I, I always... You know, I've only seen her in, like I said, in these two movies that I can remember, um, you know, specifically, I'm sure I've seen her in more, but she always, uh, she has this aura about her, just she's very, mm-hmm. she really jumps off the screen. And uh, yeah. um, and also Robert Beltran, who plays uh, Raul, the titular Raul, <laughs> um, I think this is actually his first major film. And he, he was, I thought he was really great in this, just very, uh, very dynamic, um, you know, and just kind of like, 
he was like a scene stealer sort of and yeah um, he doesn't come into the film until about halfway through but um the three of them together was just you know paul bartell he's he's a character in his own right i think he just always has this way of playing well the characters are called the blands and i think he has a way of playing these very like these very staunch and sort of stiff you know stiff characters um he has a great like comedic way of doing that and uh you know to see them three together in this movie was just like really a treat i thought yeah the way the way they played off each other and um this movie was inspired by paul bartell's wish to make a, a personal eccentric film that would star both himself and the, uh like we talked about mary warnoff who was an Andy Warhol regular and also just someone that he started collaborating with and he really enjoyed and they enjoyed, enjoyed each other. And actually, I think you asked before we recorded this, Jeremy, were they married in real life because they, they have this rapport with mm -hmm. each other and it, you almost think at first that they are and because they did appear in so much together. Um, but they were not. They were just, you know, collaborators and they worked together a lot. They liked to work together. Well, especially in, in this film, like I, I, the reason I asked that and, and I should have looked it up, but the reason I asked that is just in this film, there, there's just a... There's something it's a valid about question, I think. Yeah. Yeah, like there, there, there's something about the way they interact on screen that kind of feel like it transcends an on-screen relationship in a weird way. Very natural. It, yeah, it's yeah. it's just so natural. But like when they get kind of on each other's nerves, when they're having mm -hmm. conversations where the hell, it doesn't feel like two people acting. It just feels like two people who just know each other so well. Like there, there's like yeah. a physicality to how they yeah. they Definitely, interact yeah. with each other. It's that, a very that, odd oddball couple, but it, it would work in some some, yeah. some, some way. Yeah. Um, for sure, yeah. And they were also, they were affiliated with um, Roger Corman, who mm -hmm. is someone who's going to come up a lot on this show because of all the films and actors that he's affiliated with. But uh, uh, Paul Bartel, before this, had directed Death Race 2000, which Mary also acted in. And that is one of the all-time, I think, great cult films. Just really cheap, uh, <laughs> laugh riot, ridiculous, over-the-top racing slash running over people movie uh, which if you haven't seen it definitely watch that yeah. movie if you're into these kind of movies and we're, i'm sure we'll talk about it at some point but um you know sylvester stallone's in it and you know it's just it's crazy and so he directed that movie and um so he was kind of in with that crowd a little bit so he was you know and i think he prided himself on being sort of a independent filmmaker an independent guy and you could not have made this movie in the studio system, right? No. I mean, there's just no way this would have flown no. uh, at any time, really. Even if someone had found a way to, it wouldn't be this movie if it had. No, been. it would. No, exactly. You're you're right about that. Um, and so he said about this movie, Paul Bartel. He has a quote. Um, he said, "I wanted to make a film about two greedy, uptight people who are at the same time not so unlike you and me and." Nancy and Ronnie, this is the 80s, remember, to keep it funny and yet communicate something about the psychology and per perversity of these values. Uh, my movie touches on many things, the perversion of middle-class values, the resurgence of Nixonism, machismo versus wasp fastidiousness, <laughs> and and also film noir. Um, and I think it does touch on all those. Yeah, I mean, yeah. The, and it, you know, the, the film noir, at first I didn't really get that, but then the more you think about it, this movie is yeah. sort of like a, a Hitchcock plot or something the way yeah, it kind no, of evolves into yeah i mean like we were saying before when, when you read the the description of the plot it mm -hmm. sounds like a, a gritty noir movie like a couple who's trying mm -hmm. to get money so they kill a bunch of wealthy yeah. swingers like that sounds like it could easily it could be go either way a very dark you know <laughs> like yeah. it, it just happens to be hysterically funny but it, it is dark but yeah darkly comic yeah um, and also very silly i appreciated how kind of over mm -hmm. the top and silly it was. It, it actually reminded me of the humor 
that we found in uh, rock and roll high school. That sort of mm-hmm. kind of almost over the top silliness, but not you know. But I think it would balance that out with the darkness in this movie, yeah. which rock and roll high school didn't really have to no. you know to lean on. But this movie, it, it has that balance, and um, it's so over the top in both directions that it kind of works in a weird sort of way. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, I saw this movie described as pop art, and I kind of understand yeah. that in a way. Yeah. I mean, even even as we kind of start digging into a little bit of plot recap here for everyone, like even even the very opening of the film is kind of like a, a classic like advertisement for Los Angeles in, in the very, you know... Welcome to Los Angeles. You normally see like Land of Dreams or something like that, but immediately it's yeah. you know Welcome to Los Angeles, Land of <laughs> Sex and Drugs. <laughs> yeah, well, let's talk about that opening. So yeah. there's the film opens with this sort of pseudo Hollywood newsreel, I guess you call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, with the cheesy music, and it clearly shows the tone of the film right off the bat. Um, and I said, as I said, the whole movie has that kind of goofy feel to it and it you know right off the bat you, you see that newsreel and it, it really just brings you into it with the sight gags and all that um and i thought it was a good way to to kick it off and um and then from there we uh <laughs> so we start with uh, the first scene is with the character paul who who is played by paul and mary you know played by mary, played by mary. Um, but but this scene is just paul uh, he works in a liquor store and um right off the bat in the very first scene we get some nonchalant and blatant violence we get a, a murder right in the first what like minute of the movie yeah. two minutes maybe mm-hmm. um and so the boss of the liquor store that paul works at um they're being robbed and he just takes a gun and casually shoots the man who's attempting to rob them uh and paul in the movie hardly bats an eye so and yeah. so that kind of gets you in the you know to let it lets you know what kind of movie this is going to be mm-hmm. and i think it's a very smart way to start it because yeah things are only going to get weirder from here. So just to kind of start it off with something like that, it's just so dark, dark and dry and yeah. very silly at the same time. I think that's a good way to, to start this movie. It's almost um, like, as we talked about in our, on a previous series, in our lo-fi sci-fi series, in a sci-fi mm-hmm. movie, you have to set up the rules of your world very early on. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel like they did the exact same thing in this movie where it's like, you know, these are the rules of the world. Someone will, yeah. will get killed and it's nobody will like bat a- an eye. But, yeah, it's almost like a cartoon yeah. world or something. Yeah. So, yeah, someone someone dies and it's fine, but two people will have an extensive argument over a bottle of wine. It's <laughs> yeah. like like that's right. that's the rules of this of this world. <laughs> and that's where the comedy comes from, really, yeah. right? I mean with, with this movie. Because the characters they play, Paul is such a wine snob. He's just like such mm-hmm. a you know, they like I can only describe him as like just a stiff, you know. Um I guess they're kind of like yuppies, uh before mm-hmm. that term was really right. I guess that term was around back then but um so there's paul we meet him first and then we meet his wife mary um and she's working as a nutritionist at a hospital and so this is paul mary bland and they both come home from work and were introduced to some other tenants of the building and who are very clearly swingers um and paul you know so they're all coming coming together for some sort of party where they're, they're all going to swing together which i guess was pretty big at the time um coming from the 70s swinging <laughs> you know key, key parties and all that yeah so I'm sure um, in real life, Paul and, and his co-writer, Richard Blackburn, I'm, saw, like, I'm sure they were pulling on things from real life, you know, things they had seen or who knows, maybe they were involved with, who knows. Um, so they come home from work to their apartment and um, they, they run into these swingers in the elevator and in the hallway. And Paul makes it very clear that he has a, a disdain for these people. <laughs> um, and both he and his wife see them as no, nothing more than sexual deviance, not really contributing anything to society. But the Blands, they have dreams. They want to open their own restaurant. 
And we learned about that in the, the early scenes there. And um, they want a, I guess, like a refined, sophisticated clientele, unlike these other people that who live in their building. It, or it's how they imagine themselves, right? At least yeah. so. Um, and they kind of pride themselves on being uptight, I guess, is how I saw it. Mm-hmm. So right off the bat, they seem like very fun characters to play. I can see why Mary was drawn to this and to working with Paul in this movie. And uh, they had a, a, obviously had a great time with it. And so there's, you know, the... The swinging party in their in their apartment building with the red lights and dominatrix so again kind of like over the top imagery of that and the dominatrix drops her card and it comes into play later because this is how they get the idea uh, later on of what they're going to, to end up doing so um so also in this early scene mary is assaulted by one of the party goers or was he a renter i think he was actually a renter in their apartment right it was, it was kind of confused it, well, it wasn't i don't think it was totally it, they didn't really um yeah, yeah clarify that but he ends up assaulting her and Paul finds them struggling and ends up killing him with a kitchen knife. So that's his first murder of the movie. And also, I think one of the best lines of the movie when he says, I killed a man and his wife says, he was a man. Now he's a bag of garbage. Yeah. <laughs> Which is just again, a great it's, line. It's such a great line. It's just so dark. Like that's, that's one of the things I love. That's such a cult movie line right yeah, there. Like yeah. this movie, you know, we, we've talked about plenty of twisted movies on this podcast. Mm. And this, this, is up one, there. Yeah. this one's definitely up there, but it kind of doesn't feel like it. Like you no, watch it, and you're you're like, yeah. oh, that's that's kind of. And then like when you really think about what's happening in this movie, you're like, Jesus, yeah. Christ, you know, this is. But it, they present it in a way that's like almost harmless. It's, yeah. it's odd. Yeah, it's, it's unless you have seen it, you know, it's, it's hard to describe to someone. I think. Yeah. Because also, of what you're dealing with. But... Also, to go to that scene, there's just another because there's so many moments in this movie where it seems so normal. Like, and, that, and that's what's so amazing to me about this movie is how normal it makes just the most absurd things seem. Is There's a moment in that first scene before this man assaults Mary where the guy walks in and starts kind of trying to hit on her and Paul punches the guy in the stomach and the guy just starts throwing up everywhere. <laughs> just everywhere. They're like, oh no, the carpet. Like, it's just like, it's just so casual. I actually forgot about that scene. That's yeah, and that's yeah. The thing. It, they, they make it seem so normal that like you forget yeah. these moments, but like in any other movie, that would be the craziest yeah. scene in the movie. But in this one, it's a, mo- <laughs> it's a moment that just gets glossed over. Like it's nothing. Yeah. I actually forgot about it until you just mentioned yeah. it. That's really funny though. It's a great, yeah, that's really funny. Yeah, and then, and then he, he, he just, he goes, in, the guy goes into the bathroom and he's throwing up and then they hear just a splash and he falls into the <laughs> toilet and they're like, is he dead? And he's like, I don't know, he might have drowned. And then he gets up and he's okay. It's right. like, it's like the craziest, <laughs> weirdest scene yeah. of all time. And it, in this movie, it's, it's not even the beginning. It's just, it's yeah, so casual. It, this is so early on too. Yeah. Cause eventually, so the movie really goes places, which I was not prepared for. Yeah. Um, again, I, my first time seeing this movie, I think you had seen it, what, uh, once before, I guess? Long time ago, yeah. Long, Long time, time ago. Because, um, yeah, you had mentioned that you'd seen it and that you really liked it. So um, so for me, going into it, I didn't really know too much about it. So I was just along for the ride, and I did not really know where it was going to go. So, um, so from here, so eventually they're trying to get a loan for their restaurant that they want to open because they want to get out of this life they're in now, this apartment they're in. Uh, and Mary tries to get a loan. And she is, again, aggressively sexually assaulted um, by the person who she's trying to get the loan from. Um, and also she's assaulted by one of her patients. Who, he's sort of like an obsessive patient of hers at the hospital. He even comes to their apartment. And again, there is a murder um, <laughs> as, they, as they kill him. And so they realize after all these murders that are piling up, hey, we could we could make more money killing people than working our jobs <laughs> and just kind of, you know what I mean? Like we could achieve our dream if we just do this one thing, which obviously kind of a taboo and, you know, so I would say a moral 
gray gray area. But for these two, it doesn't seem that out of the ballpark for them. Just like, you know, they, they talk about it, but they eventually decide, yeah, this is what we have to do. And they kind of justify it because these people that they're killing, um, and it's funny because this is a theme that it's actually come back up a lot lately and just things I've been reading and, and things like that, things I've been watching. Um, you know, it's like these people deserve it, right? So it's like, so it's almost like they're doing people a favor, you know? That, that's how they kind of justify it. But it's like, are they really or are they just finding a, an excuse, you know? I mean, they yeah. don't know anything about these people that they're killing, really. They don't yeah. know if they have families or if there really are, you know, good also, people underneath all that. I, I also just don't really think this this movie, you know, as, as we talked about Miss 45 last time, there was some moral gray area. Yeah, about, there is a little bit of that in this. Yeah. There's a little bit, but like, I don't think this one is really Played too... Played for laughs, obviously. Yeah, I don't think it's thinking as much about the morality of murder. It's there, but it's... Yeah, it's, it's played for laughs. Kind of, yeah. 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 Um, well, it's, it's more something that I was just thinking about when yeah. when I was watching it. Obviously, played for laughs in this um, in this instance. So, um, so from there, they start their own dominatrix business as a front to lure lure men to their apartment. Mm -hmm. And most of the murder, like we mentioned, Jeremy is pretty comical. I mean, he hits them with a frying pan for yeah. most of the murders. So, it's like it has that kind of slapstick farce element to it which is great because they're trying to start a restaurant <laughs> it's just like yeah that's another yeah that's a good image they're trying to start a restaurant for... so he hits him with a frying pan yeah and one of my just to, i know we talk about favorite moments at the end normally but because we're talking about the frying pan one of my favorite moments is when uh i believe mary is about to go cook dinner and she's like do you think you could get another frying pan i don't really want to cook on the same one we've been using to <laughs> oh, murder yeah, people <laughs> and he's like yeah sure i'll get another one <laughs> it's just, it's yeah, just so that, casual and another moment i just thought of because you, you mentioned that moment when um Someone leaves the apartment. I think it's the renter or someone. Or actually, no, you know what? It's the guy who throws up everywhere. When he leaves the apartment, um, there's a just a really quick shot of Mary just in the background, just spraying this disinfectant everywhere. Yeah. Just, just something really funny about that. Just like how yeah. casual it is, but mm -hmm. like how like they don't want to be affiliated with these people at all. Yep. Um, so... So, who is Raul? So that's the question that I had going into the movie. And I think a lot of people would. Um, so he's a locksmith. And he shows up almost sort of, what, like casually, right? He's kind yeah. of like, shows up and, you know, in the back of my head, I'm like, oh, okay, is this a character that maybe just shows up again at the end or something? Like, I wasn't really sure how it was going to go. But he ends up being a very crucial character. And it's it's almost the, the three of them. Um, so Paul, Mary, and Raul, who kind of are the core of the film, uh, the back and forth between the three of them and the plotting that ends up happening. So he plays a locksmith who comes to their apartment, but he ends up breaking into their apartment because he has the key. So he's sort of like a shady guy. Um, and he stumbles upon what they've been doing with, uh, you know, the dead, dead bodies and whatnot. And uh, they end up cutting a deal. So he helps them out. They help, you know, they help him. And um, so they have this sort of three-way deal going here. And then, of course, Thrown on top of that, there's a little bit of a love triangle or just a sort of an aff affair that ends up happening between Raul and Mary. So uh, that puts Paul and Mary's relationship to the test. So sort of a lot going on here, sort of more than mm -hmm. I had anticipated. Yeah. I, To be honest, when I first heard about the movie and I wanted to see it, I thought it was sort of like, um, like a Boonwell, because, you know, like um, Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, where, mm -hmm. you know, where it was almost like, one scene that was the entire film, you know, just like really short period of time, like maybe a dinner party where something ends up happening. So that's what I went into it thinking. But yeah. the movie goes a lot more places. And, and I mentioned like a Hitchcock sort of plot. Yeah. And I think it definitely has elements of that sort of like a crime plot to it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, lots of twists and turns and backstabbing and uh, uh, double crossing and of course murder, right? Murder, so yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I was I appreciated um, that it so, kind of went in a, in a different direction than I thought it would. So, some kind of corporate corruption going on as we yeah, there's a little bit of that. Right? We, we find out to jump ahead a little bit that these body parts that Raul is selling off for Paul and Mary is being used to make dog food. <laughs> um, so you you kind of you kind of this is kind of in a weird way the alternate chi- the the alternate Chinatown in a weird way. yeah it's a little bit or soiling greeners yeah yeah we, we, we have a little bit of it yeah so they're all deplorable people the all the main characters which is also great I think um, mm-hmm. for a dark comedy so 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 Raúl yeah he ends up becoming a pretty central character and. He uh, at one point he really falls in love with Mary and wants to take out Paul. He wants to get rid of the, the lame Paul. So he, uh, at one point, tries to run him down with his car while he's wearing sort of like a luchador uh, like ski <laughs> mask sort of, and um, <laughs> and uh, so, uh, but that doesn't work. So you know Paul starts to get suspicious, like something's going on here, <laughs> um, and they eventually they start to you know they increase their operation they start to take on more and more uh clients i guess you could call them and they actually take over a swinging residence where they kill the the hosts there and they start hosting parties at the residence and the victims literally keep arriving in droves like they just keep coming to them um and this leads up to a final confrontation between the three of them with raul ultimately being struck with the frying pan of course um now was it paul or mary do they or do they not show you they don't show you. I I believe I it was Mary. Mary. Yeah. Yeah, and then she tries to play it off, of course, like, oh, I that was my plan the whole time to Paul, yeah. you know, like, oh, I just, you know, I wanted to lure him here so we could take care of him, but you kind of get the feeling that she did have some feelings for Raúl, mm-hmm. um, and they need to throw together a quick dinner for James, who is, um, I guess, he's the one giving them the loan, or they're mm-hmm. asking for a loan. Um, t- for their restaurant or an investor. I, or was he the come- one selling? I thought he was the one selling them the space. Oh, I'm sorry. He's the one. Yeah, yeah he's, he's the one. The, yeah. So I guess he's more like real estate. So he's selling them or the mm-hmm. owner um, of the space. So he's going to sell them the restaurant or the space where they're going to make the restaurant. And he's coming over to discuss the plans with them. And they need to put together a dinner. So there you go. Eating Raul. Eat Raul. Yeah. And so it takes a while to get there, and yeah. it was not how I expected it to get there. But it is. It is in it a weird way. Hear, hearing it all, you know, not not watch the movie, but hearing it all, just kind of uh, talk. The Cliff through. Notes version. Yeah, yeah it, it is kind of like a really drawn out, like knock knock mm-hmm. joke. <laughs> like <laughs> it's it, like the movie is eating Raul. To get to that punchline. Well, and literally, you watch this whole movie just to get to that punchline. <laughs> But, but along the way, I mean, yeah. it, and like I said, it, it was unexpected. Uh, the places this movie goes, I just did not, I, I didn't see it as good. You know, I didn't know it was going to be as much of a, I guess, crime movie. Yeah. With, you know, this sort of intrigue and everything. Um, so it does go some places. I do think that maybe um, while it's a great runtime, I think the 90 minute runtime, or actually it's might even be a little bit shorter. I think it's like an hour and 20 minutes yeah, not or something even, like yeah. that, which for me is like a sweet spot um, yeah. for, for comedy. I think it's uh, a perfect runtime, but even with that runtime, I think the only thing downside I could say to the movie is that it does kind of maybe run out of steam a little bit towards the end. Mm-hmm. It kind of gets caught up in its own web a little too much, but um, ultimately, I think it's really worth watching and definitely a great independent cult film from the '80s for sure. Um, but you know, rewatching it, I guess revisiting it, uh, Jeremy, how did you feel about it this time around? Yeah, so it had been a while um, since I'd seen this one, and I don't know. I think it was probably even funnier watching it this time. Like this, the second time because I, I had kind of forgotten what it was, 
and and I remember that it you know it had this kind of dry dark humor, but I didn't remember exactly or the first time I watched it because I was a little younger. I didn't notice exactly how kind of like twisted it is and how easily <laughs> it just shrugs that kind of thing off. I mean, like there, yeah. there's scenes in this where you know like like there's one sequence where. When, when they've kind of started their business, for lack of a better term, where they're bringing in these people so they can murder them with their frying pan, but mm-hmm. they're, they're posing as swingers, you know, it's like, you get to see all these people's fetishes, so you have one who is, like, into, like, Nazi stuff, yeah. which is, like, just so twisted. I mean, and this, yeah. this is, you know... It's almost like, what can we throw in here that's just gonna be yeah. off Yeah, one, one was, like, like kind of like a Mickey Mouse fetish. Oh, one, the Mickey it's, Mouse. It's, like just, it's just so, like... Like it, it's just so so patently absurd. Not that those things don't exist, but it's like you you can really kind of tell that you know because as we mentioned, Bartel and Warnov both had a relationship with Roger Corman, who's obviously kind of like the king of the exploitation film, mm-hmm. and you can kind of tell. You know what I mean? You you can kind of see how yeah they like, glean some uh, filmmaking <laughs> techniques. And yeah, because to me, this ideas. film really feels like what if someone tried to make an exploitation film for a kind of leftist intellectual elite. You yeah. know, you, you if you mm-hmm. kind of take out the, the like, you know, cheap horror thrills and yeah. cheap, like, like you, you take the, like, the, the cheap sexual elements that you would find in an exploitation film and mm-hmm. use them in a very clever, dry way. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's like, it's, 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 it, it, it's like if, if you made, um, you know, you made a 70s grindhouse film aimed at people who read The New Yorker. Right, exactly, yeah. <laughs> which, which I don't know, it's, just, it's such an interesting tone because there aren't, I, I guess the only other, at least off the top of my head, and, and I'm sure there are a ton of examples, and if anyone thinks of any, please feel free to write them in. Mm-hmm. But like the, the contemporary example I can think of is like a Yorgos Lanthimos kind of thing, you know, like Dogtooth. Yeah, yeah. Definitely, um, yeah. You know, uh, the Alps, like like those guys. Mm-hmm. But, but it's different because the, the, I feel like a Dogtooth, you know, or, or uh, The Favorite or, or The Lobster, you know, some of those, logos, they're all kind of looked at as art films. Where when this came out, at least from how I understand it, it was kind of looked at more as an exploitation film. It was like probably, it was yeah. like this thing hadn't become an art form yet. It's um, almost like people probably didn't know what to look at it as. Yeah, because it's it's just so so like not of its time. I, I think this is the kind yeah. of movie that would have benefited. Not that you know, obviously we're still talking about it. You know, almost forty years later here, but it, I think it's the kind of movie that would have benefited from the internet. If, if that was around when it came out, because I could easily see, like, there's just so many moments in this film that are memeable, you yeah. know, that, that could easily be well, in, integrated into meme culture. You mentioned it being not really of its time, but I see it's a little bit, out, maybe a little bit ahead of its time, I guess. Yeah. Um, with what it was doing with um, more conservative, conservative values and mm-hmm. um, greed and things like that. Um but also sort of timeless. I mean, the, the the themes that it talks about and just the aesthetic of the movie, like they, they decorate their apartment with 50s furniture, you know, they yeah. just kind of have that mother and, and father uh, of the 50s, you know, like that, yeah. they kind of have that sort of quality, wholesome quality, but also they're just mm-hmm. extremely evil and selfish. They, they um, even have the 50s TV in the apartment. Yeah, a little bit of like, yeah, like how they, how the 50s married couple was, traditionally uh, represented and i think maybe that was in the back of their heads a little bit but that's sort of mixed with this sort of or you know early 80s but um yeah. sort of yuppie for lack of a better word um that was 
these couples that were coming into um, mm-hmm. more prominence, the type of individual that was, that was becoming more prominent. And um, I think because of that, yeah, it feels a little ahead of its time, but also, mm-hmm. um, like you said, Jeremy, you can look at this movie today and just, you know, I think all the humor works just totally fine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are obviously some jokes in it that, you know, might not stand up as politically more, correct yeah. today, um, oh, which uh, yeah. is to be expected with probably yeah. any cult movie we Anything watch. Anything that you look back on, yeah. really, yeah. But especially cult movies because they're, they're, you know, mm-hmm. they're kind of trying to push envelopes. Well, they're trying and, to push the buttons. Like you said, like there's a Nazi imagery. And, yeah, yeah. So. yeah. Well, I, I mean, I don't think the Nazi thing would be a problem not, today. Yeah, that, yeah. I, I think there's more People just like are always going to hate Nazis. So that, you know, <laughs> kind of like some of the, the racial jokes about, mm. you know, Raul and stuff. But, but mm. you know, but but I, I do think it's it's just one of those things with a movie like this where like, like you said, like a lot of the jokes would hold up now. And, and I think it's because it kind of is making fun of how twisted people are mm-hmm. that they can get away with certain things, you mm-hmm. know? And, and one, one thing I love that I, that I really noticed for the first time rewatching it is, is, you know, this couple, they keep talking about how they hate these swingers. They hate these wealthy people who, but what they're trying to do this whole time is make more money. You know what I mean? Like, like yeah, there's an irony there that I didn't even think of that. Really. Yeah. Yet. Which is kind of in a weird way, like, so All they care about his money. Yeah, and it's so quintessentially American, particularly mm-hmm. like Reagan's America. Capitalism. Where like, yeah, where it's like like there is this this weird thing in American culture where there's this disdain for people who have a lot of money, but mm-hmm. all American people want to do is make a lot of money. It's like like Americans yeah. like like people like if if like someone who has a lot of money is expected to be really humble, mm-hmm. but everyone wants a lot of money so they can buy a lot of shit. So, so it is, it, it, it's this weird, you know what I mean? It's, it's this weird thing it's in American, American culture. American dream. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think it's something I'd be really curious to like, cause at least personally, I don't think I've ever had an extended conversation with someone who is an American about their view of the American dream. It's just, I, and I've played plenty of conversations with people who aren't American, but like, it's never really come up in that way. Um, yeah. But like, it is kind of a weird paradox because it is like, like American culture kind of demonizes wealth. Mm-hmm. in this weird way you know while it also glorifies it and i think this movie understands that perfectly because you have these people yeah. who are trying to make money and then they're surrounded by a bunch of people who are really wealthy who are like this disgusting slobs and all the people you know not the disgusting i'm not judging their sexual habits they're disgusting slobs because they're you know yeah assholes part of my french but you know but, but it's like the the movie is is kind of not judging all of them because it's like these people they just want to make all this money so that they can like hire someone hire a dominatrix to pretend to be a nazi like that's why they want the money yeah you know what i mean it, it, yeah it, i think it, you're right like i think even though the movie is so off the wall and, mm-hmm. and it's bouncing all over the place i think it comes from such a singular yeah. viewpoint you know such a singular perspective and that's kind of what makes it work you know you, you kind of know that there's a certain angle that they're taking yeah. um, with this material so um so with all the craziness going on in the movie it, it all kind of works and um I thought it was. I actually laughed out loud a couple of times, which I, I don't absolutely. usually do um, yeah. with movies. I think it, it's hard not to with this one because it's so shocking. Yeah, I think the throwing up scene actually was one. Of the yeah, because <laughs> it really comes out of nowhere and has nothing to do with anything. I think it's yeah. just maybe showing how disgusting these these people are to them, or you know how they perceive them, maybe or like the literally hot... puking all over their yeah. furniture and rug and everything. Or the hot tub scene. <laughs> There's there's a, there's a the hot tub scene at the end where all these swingers are like like they've been talking about this. Oh hot, yeah, this, the, the whole movie they're talking about yeah come to the hot tub party, which is so funny because I don't like I mean maybe that was a seventies thing, but it's like a hot tub party. Like what is a hot tub party? Yeah. And then they finally go there and he just zaps them all while they're sitting in the tub and yeah. like it's and, such an abrupt abrupt ending to that scene. I just I yeah, <laughs> like they're building it up to this whole thing yeah. and he just it's it's just so. 
Like there's just so many movies. It just like cuts movie. away from it too. Like yeah, yeah. like the, like the writing, the writing in this movie is like unbelievable, mm-hmm. and like not like necessarily unbelievably like unbelievable in the sense that it's like oh they've set up foreshadowing and everything. It's just so unbelievably bold. Yeah. You know, like like it's so rare to see something where the, the writing is just this unrestrained. Like there there was just no risk that was not taken in this movie. Mm-hmm. Bold is a good word for it. And and actually, one of the things I wanted to touch on with this movie, we've talked about the movie a lot, and I want to talk about the making of it a little bit too, but before I even get to that, I want to say that this is this movie is just very, you know, we, we touched on it a little bit, but it's the type of very original, like out-of-box type film that you just really don't see anymore. Because um, now I feel like with, I mean, it's it's you can't say that 100%, obviously. Like I know mm-hmm. there's, there's always outliers and there's ones that, that creep through the cracks and you know that always happens but i i think in modern um cinema and uh, you know a lot of the major motion pictures especially and even like the more independent ones there usually needs to be some sort of connection to something there needs to be a franchise there needs to be um it needs to be based on a book or or something that's popular um and even independent films uh that get picked up for distribution. I mean, they, they sometimes, I, I find they don't really take chances mm-hmm. a lot of the time. Again, not 100%, but just it, a, a sort of a general thing that I've noticed in in the climate of today's uh, film. And seeing this movie was just so refreshing. And it just reminded me of a time where something like this, even though it's independent and very, <laughs> very low budget, so it was very... Mm-hmm cheap to make i mean the fact that it, it even came out like and was was released it's yeah just and it got amazing. distribution that, like that's, that's yeah because those these movies exist today but they're being yeah. made in people's backyards and well yeah it, nobody and, ever sees them or maybe on youtube or you know i yeah. actually i made a note that sometimes you see them on maybe on netflix or hbo mm-hmm. um so they do sneak through the cracks they, you know i'm not saying they don't but mm-hmm. not very often and this this film is very much a lone wolf and i feel like it's proud of it yeah i feel like they were they kind of wear that the independent badge very proudly um you just kind of get that feeling from watching the movie and and like i said it was just refreshing um to see a movie not connected to anything else it is just its own thing and just did not knowing what to expect you know when i went into it just not knowing what was going to happen so mm-hmm. um just so, just something I, I wanted to point out cuz i you know something i noticed um so uh, i do want to talk a little bit about the budget because so it was this this movie is extremely low budget. It was shot over I believe twenty two days, um, but it was shot over the course of a year. I think mostly on weekends, and I could pull up the actual number here. I was <laughs> more prepared for this when we did our low lo fi sci fi. Um, Wiki- looks like Wikipedia esti- says three hundred fifty thousand. Yeah, estimated three hundred fifty thousand budget. Um, not sure what it made back on that, but. Um, mm-hmm. I think it did, it did it did pretty well I think in the you know maybe it was like smaller release but um so yeah pretty low budget and but I think they did a lot with that budget and I think that was all they needed really I don't think they needed more than that I mean of course when you're making a movie you can always use more right but yeah. um I think they made it work for this and they cast a lot of people that they knew um the filmmakers did and there's a lot of cameos from you know performers that that worked with them before people that uh, a lot from the, actually the Los Angeles improv company, the groundlings, um, you know, mm. I'm sure people are familiar with the groundlings. Um, so you know, New York has like, um, its own crew. Right. And then LA has the groundlings. Like that's kind of like their improv, uh, you know, mainstay there. So uh, a lot of people actually, um, somebody that was, uh, that played, <laughs> I can't think of his name right now, but he played Jambi in, um, 
the Pee Wee's Playhouse. <laughs> um, he was so he was one of them, and he um, they actually wanted to get Paul Rubens for his role. Um, it's just a very small cameo role, but so you know, just people like that kind of show up. I think um, oh, who else? Um, someone else? Oh, Buck Henry, I believe, right? Buck Henry shows up. Yeah, because I was like, he looks familiar. Who's that? Um, so yeah, so people, you know, they they got a couple names, just like small, you know, mostly it was friends that were helping them out, and um, so. Paul Bartel was able to scrape together financing from family and friends, shot the film in piecemeal fashion when he could afford it. Um, and this, so it was film, this film was shot on multiple sta uh, stocks, film stocks. And from a variety of sources, it was much, much of it was on, sh it's called short ends. So it's the short unused portions of unexposed film, uh, which is much cheaper, obviously. Fun fact, a fun fact together. about short ends. That was actually uh Back in the early 80s, so it's, uh, I believe, early 80s, um, my, my, my dad actually, with a friend of his, started a company that sold short ends to independent productions. So right. it's actually not outside the possibility that he may have sold them to, to this film. Wow. Just think, I didn't realize that now, but yeah. That is awesome. So that's, that's, <laughs> that's really not, cool. I mean, no guarantee. I'm sure there are plenty of people yeah. doing that back in the day. But, you know, mm -hmm. not outside the realm of possibility. That, that, that In New York, I guess? In uh, L.A. In LA, oh, LA, LA. Yeah, yeah, yeah so yeah. and okay, this right. is an LA film, so definitely. Right, know, right, right. Maybe, maybe oh, right. there's a connection Paul, Paul to the Paul movie from, called... Yeah, Paul Bartel's from New York, right? So that's why I, I guess I thought that, but mm -hmm. yeah, there might be some connection there. I mean, who knows? Yeah, who but, knows? To the to the cult movie, cult podcast. Who knows? Maybe. <laughs> Stranger things have happened, mm -hmm. but um, so he, yeah, so very cheap to produce this movie and to make it, but it was a labor of love, right? So, um, and so they pretty much, you know, with, with using these short ends of films, they. They pretty much crossed their fingers and just hoped <laughs> that everything worked out fine. They would just deliver it to the developing lab and hope that it came out okay. Um, so it was kind of like a gamble, you know, the whole time they were making it. And years later, the film, you know, obviously we're talking about on this show, became a cult favorite. And a sequel was scripted. They actually were going, they were very close to making a sequel to this movie. Um, and I forget which exact year it was, but the, um, it was the same characters, the Blands. And it had to do with a political campaign. I think they, they run for office or something like that. Um, and I think Chevy Chase was going to be in it. And they had, you know, they actually were very close to funding. Um, and then last minute, it just fell through. Um, and I think they wanted to, you know, I think they still wanted to make it later on. But then, of course, Paul Bartel uh, ends up passing away. I believe it was 2000. Um, so they never got to make it, which is, uh, you know, it's... it's um, disappointing obviously but again i think eating raul is such a singular thing and i think it it yeah. really just works on its own it doesn't need anything else i mean it would have been fun to see these characters again for yeah. sure um, it, it's like it's like a blessing in a car like it would have been nice to see a sequel but at the same time you never know what a sequel can do to an original yeah. you know mm -hmm. so maybe it's for the best exactly yeah sometimes it's yeah it can soil the the memories or you know of the original so uh who knows but either way um, this film, as it stands uh, by itself, I, I thought was very enjoyable. I really uh, was entertained by it the whole way through. Um, really liked the performances. And as I mentioned before to, to Jeremy, uh, uh, the actor that played Raul, Robert Beltran, I believe this is one of his first appearances, I just thought he was really great in it and kind of came out of nowhere uh, to kind of take over the film. And um, he's such a big part of the, the last part of the film and did a great job. And Mary, uh, Mary Warrenoff, as always, I thought was really great in this. And Paul, I mean, who but Paul Bartel could play this part so well? I thought yeah. it was just it was just perfect. So all around, casting was great. 
uh, writing was great. You know, dark comedy worked really well, and I really enjoyed it. So yeah, um, I'm glad I got to watch it and, and talk about it on the show. It actually reminded me a little bit. Um, one last thing I wanted to mention. I don't know if you have you seen the movie Society, Jeremy, from 1989. I don't think so. It's a sort of it's more of a horror film, but. Um, it has elements of this movie. Uh, so this is the other end of the 80s. So mm-hmm. almost the 90s, um, this movie came out. And um, if you get a chance, um, it's another, you know, I would say it's a cult film. Actually, it's it's sort of disgusting. Uh, <laughs> I want to preface it by saying that because it's actually... It's not cute and tidy like Eating Raul. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's taking Eating Raul to the even more extreme, I would say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I don't really want to give it away. It's, it, you know, don't eat anything before you watch it. I'll say that. Um, the very, like, end, the ending of the movie, uh, I'm not going to say what it is, but it's just what it devolves into. But I think it deals with similar themes. And I don't know if the filmmakers of that were aware of this movie or not, but mm-hmm. um, it deals with um, the social elite um, having their way with, uh, you know, the less fortunate, I guess, the... The, the I guess who they see is like the poor people you know they can do anything they want to and there is eating involved and that's all I'll say but <laughs> Noted. that is all I have to say so did any uh you know any other moments you wanted to talk about this with eating Raul or anything else you wanted to bring up uh, thematically uh, with it or any no, acting I mean or anything? I, th- I think we've hit most of them this is this is one of those movies where like yeah. we you know we always say on this podcast we hope you watch too the movie. much to say yeah, yeah, we, yeah, we hope you watch the movie ahead of time. But if for some reason you've listened to this podcast and haven't watched it yet, don't let this spoil it. Go watch the movie. Yeah, go watch uh, the movie. Definitely. This, this it's, it's an experience. Yeah, mm-hmm. actually. So one one last thing I want to say about this one is uh, this is a Criterion movie now. It has yeah, gotten it the is. Criterion seal of approval, which is just kind of cool. Um, you know, on on this podcast we talk about a mix of movies, some that are kind of uh, critically revered and held up, and some that aren't uh i would probably say a lot that kind of aren't a lot that yeah. are mostly just viewed as you know kind of funny or jokey but this is one of those movies that really i think time has been nice to mm-hmm. um and it took it, people a while to catch on to this one i think yeah so so th- you know this this is this is a cool movie kind of if you love cult movies but also you know if you're just kind of an independent film nerd or you have friends who are independent film nerds yeah. who might be hesitant to watch something kind of from the exploitation era, this might be a cool movie to recommend um, because obviously it's gross, but it's, it's you know, it's dark humor. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it, too, it, I mean, like it's it's cartoony for most it, of Yeah, it's cartoony. Sure. It, it's not one that, you know, if you recommend it to somebody, they're going to be like, I can't believe you recommended something so vile. Like this yeah. this one is, is is more intellectual. Society is, is vile. But. Yeah, <laughs> this, this one's more intellectual. So, so I don't know, I'd say just, you know, this is one I, I'd, I'd recommend and I would recommend it. Mm everyone else recommends it because it would be yeah. great to just have more people kind of see this movie and discover it. And like many films that we talk about, Jeremy, the, uh, the more independent films we talk about, um, anyone who's interested in, in filmmaking too, I think mm-hmm. this is a very inspiring movie to watch. If you're either thinking about writing a film or just starting to get into production on a, you know, an indie film or something like that. I think watching a movie like eating Raul is just very mm-hmm. inspiring in a lot of ways, like to see what you can do, with such little money and, and just an original concept, just getting a bunch of actors together, having a good time with it. Um, and I'm sure they went through a lot of struggles filming this too, but mm-hmm. I think what comes across is more just like a very fun and comedic film. And, and it's, you know, if you're someone that is into making films or just interested in filmmaking itself, um, I think this is, is a great one to watch even just for that. Mm-hmm. And 
Ed Bagley Jr. is in it as well. I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> I knew there was one actor I was forgetting, and I looked him up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ed Bagley Jr. shows up as a hippie. Right. And, of course, he's killed. Anyway, so that was Eating Raul. And if you'd like to watch along with us, we always uh, encourage that and appreciate it. So the next film that we'll be talking about in part three of 80s Indies is going to be another film actually from 1982, another uh, American uh, indie film. This one's more of a drama. It's called Smithereens, directed by Susan Seidelman. Um, So I'm looking forward to that one. Another one I have not seen yet, Jeremy. So very much. uh, I know Desperately Seeking Susan is a a very big, sort of, I guess, more indie or cult film of hers. But Mm -hmm. um, this was what was her film before that uh, earlier in her career. And, um, you know, seen as one of those uh, stand up indie films. um, And I really am looking forward to seeing that one as well. So hopefully you'll watch along with us. But until then. Thanks for listening to Cult Movie Cult, and you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any cult films you'd like to hear us discuss on the show, or if you'd like to officially join the cult and be a guest on the show, you can do that as well. Please feel free to reach out to us at cultmoviecult at gmail.com. This has been Cult Movie Cult, and until next time, so long from the other side.